All right, so we're working our way through the Gospel of Mark. So if you need a Bible, raise your hand and someone will bring one to you so you can follow along with us. Uh, But uh, you're welcome to keep that Bible. If you have a Bible of your own, you should also turn it to Mark chapter 9. We're going to pick it up in verse 33 today. Uh, But wanted to uh, over here on the left hand side, Tim. There you go. I wanted to uh, just remind you what we're doing here as we're working our way through the Gospel of Mark. We're also working a countdown of sorts that we're going to finish the Gospel of Mark on Resurrection Sunday, uh, which is pretty exciting, I think, to be able to do that, that it's just worked out so nicely for us. Uh, So really, if you want to think about it, we're starting our Easter series a couple of months ago, and we're just continuing our Easter series all the way through until actually on Easter Sunday And then the exciting thing for me, I don't know if it's exciting for anybody else, is that at that time, the Wednesday before I will finish the Old Testament, I'll have preached through every book of the Old Testament. And then that Sunday, when I finish Mark 16, I'll be finishing the New Testament. So all in one week, God has arranged it for us in such a way to finish the whole Bible. I wish I could say I was smart enough to have planned that, but it just kind of worked out that way. So I'll give God all the credit for that. That's pretty exciting for me. Um, But this morning, as we're going through the Gospel of Mark, again, Jesus has been warning his disciples. He's on his way to Jerusalem, where he will be uh, crucified, where he's going to suffer. He's going to die. And then three days later, he's going to resurrect. So they are working their way towards Jerusalem. And as he's going towards Jerusalem, he's focusing more now on teaching his disciples than he is on working the miracles. Not that there will be no more miracles, but he's just continuing to really focus in hone in on training his disciples, his apostles, because when he's gone, they become his ambassadors, his representatives to the world. Now, we know historically, as much as some of these guys might be strange characters with their own little flaws and quirks, uh, that they were apparently pretty successful because the gospel has continued to spread for 2000 years to the point where we're still talking about it today. I promise you, most of the stuff we hear in the news right now, as extreme as it might sound to us, 2000 years from now, very few people are going to be talking about it. And nobody's going to meet week to week to week to discuss the things that were in the news today. But these things were so powerful. The work and the ministry that was done there uh, by Jesus through these disciples was that powerful to really impact uh, the entirety of the world. Specifically this morning, as Jesus is going to be teaching his disciples, uh, we're going to see him teaching them specifically on the subject of servanthood. Uh, but it's going to sound maybe a little different than you've heard it. Uh, it for me actually was even a little bit of a confusion as I was going through this passage. How I remember this is four separate teachings on four separate topics. But when you really look closely at the context of this particular passage, uh, Jesus is going to sit down to teach in verse 35. And then in chapter 10, verse 1, it starts with getting up. Uh, The intention of the author then is to tell you that all of these things that we sometimes look at as individual teachings really are actually linked in one context as they're meeting in this particular house in Capernaum. So what we have to now do is try to hear things we've heard before, but hear them now in the proper context as they're linked together, not to hear them as the individual teachings and sermons that we've heard in the past. So kind of just to give you a taste of that, uh, I'm going to read through it all together. Uh, I don't always do that when I have longer passages like that just for the sake of time. Uh, But I figure you guys have all day. It's warm in here. You don't want to go outside. It's okay. Um, So verse 33 says, 
they, and that they, by the way, is Jesus and the disciples, came to Capernaum, and when, they, when he was in the house, he began to question them. What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. So sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anybody wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. And taking a child, he set him before them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, uh, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not hinder him, for there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is for us. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell into the unquenchable fire where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than having your two feet to be cast into hell where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have it have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So I'm sure as you heard that, you probably heard it the same way I did. Sean, that's four sermons, not one. What are you thinking? Because each one of those things kind of seems different. Who is the greatest? So many times we've heard sermons just on that idea. And then Jesus bringing the child and saying, you need to have a, a faith like this child. You hear a sermon just on that topic. And then you hear this idea of, of John saying, well, we didn't let this guy cast out demons in your name because he wasn't following us. He wasn't one of one of us, he wasn't on our team. And so you see that as a separate sermon and sermon. And then this idea of causing other people to stumble, you hear it as a separate sermon. And then finally, the idea of salt. Each one of these things is a separate sermon. Uh, but I think this last phrase here kind of becomes the piece that tries to tie all of this together and where it says, be at peace with one another one another. And you can then start to see that thread as it follows through there. First of all, they weren't at peace with each other because they were arguing over who was the greatest. And then they weren't at peace with this man who was preaching and casting out demons who wasn't on their team. They weren't at peace with him. And so it ties that together. And then there's this concept of stumbling other people. And so, again, not at peace through all of that. And so it's bringing us down to this point at being peace. But he's going to show us but it's going to be humility. It's going to be servanthood that's really going to bring us to a place of peace with other people. And so kind of a neat topic 
uh, when you think about it. I was trying to think of some practical examples of this, and I had this great illustration. And then as I was telling the illustration, it ended up being a not appropriate joke. And so I ditched that illustration and I came up with a better one. Um, it wasn't intent. I wasn't trying to make it an inappropriate joke, but as I said it out loud, all of a sudden I heard it and I thought that's inappropriate. You can't say that in public. So privately, if you want to hear that illustration, I would be glad to share it with you. <laughs> Shared it with a couple of people this morning, but uh, it just it's it's really not bad, but it just sounds bad when you say it out loud. That's what I'm trying to get at. So I came up with a better illustration of of servanthood as well. I don't know how close you guys uh, follow the news, but I'm constantly checking the news. I have all these websites. I gather them from all the different sides so I can try to hear from both sides of, of what's going on. But recently this picture struck me. It caught my eye. Uh, maybe you saw this story. This is in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, a, a police officer uh, had died and they were having a funeral procession for him and it was raining outside. And so this lady here, this deputy, the sheriff's deputy, is watching the funeral procession of her fallen colleague. And so she is standing at attention, saluting him in the rain when this man behind her, who is an attorney, was going to his office and he saw her saluting. And she stood there saluting for half an hour. And he stood behind her with an umbrella over her for a half an hour. And she knew nothing about it until she saw it in the news. She had no idea that he was back there blocking the rain because, you know, she has the nice brim on her hat. She couldn't see the umbrella. She's standing at attention, focusing this way, can't see behind him. And then when she dropped her salute, he dropped his umbrella and just walked away. What a perfect picture, though, of servanthood. What a beautiful picture of humility. But he could see in this moment that what she was doing was more important than what he was doing. It's a powerful picture. Unfortunately, the disciples don't necessarily have a grasp on that yet. And I would imagine that many of the disciples in this room, myself included, probably still struggle with this. Uh, It says in verse 33 that they came to Capernaum and when he was in the house, Jesus began to question them. What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent for on the way they had discussed with one another which one of them was the greatest. Now, first of all, before we ever get to the question of which one of them is the greatest, you're in the presence of Jesus Christ. And you're questioning which one of you is the greatest. Jesus is the greatest. And the rest of you are in the presence of the greatest. That is the pecking order. Jesus is the greatest. The rest of you are just in his presence. But what they're trying to do is kind of illuminate amongst themselves which one is going to be more important in the kingdom of God. And you see this kind of happening with them. Uh, You can see the natural overflow of that uh, when you think about what happened last week. First of all, uh, you have uh, James and John and Peter. They get to go up to the mountain of transfiguration so they could actually literally say, hey, we got to go up to the mountain of transfiguration with Jesus. So we're the greatest. Now, Jesus might point up. Yeah, but you messed it all up. You tried to worship these other people instead of Jesus, where my father had to intervene and say, hey, this is my son. Listen to him. Now, the other nine disciples could say, yeah, at least we didn't do that, except you remember when they got down to the bottom of the hill, the other disciples are trying to cast out demons And they're unable to. 
And Jesus makes mention of the fact it's because they don't pray enough or have enough faith. So just so you know. And now they're arguing about which one is the greatest after they both failed so miserably. It's a question that doesn't make sense in the context. But it does kind of reveal or show the heart of a lot of people. There is, I think, built in within a lot of us, this desire to kind of be the greatest, to kind of be the best. And it's not that I don't want us to try to work hard and achieve and do our best, but doing your best is different than thinking yourself as the best. How you view yourself and how you actually do things, those things should not be incongruent. They shouldn't be separate ideas. There's this strange reality that uh, very popular right now in Christian circles is all of these Christian principles on leadership. There's all of these books written about leadership and they're doing conferences about leadership and they're designing these things they call leadership pipelines. But in Scripture, the word leader, leaders, leadership in the New Testament comes up eight times. But the word serve, servanthood, servants comes up 130 times. See, the focus is wrong, but who's going to be able to sell a conference that says serve? (laughs) That conference is not going to be nearly as popular. In fact, if you have that conference, it's going to be pretty hard to find people to serve at the conference to be able to teach the conference. But it's this misconstrued mindset that we have where we're all trying to clamor for position, for authority. Uh, I actually found myself to be different than a lot of people in this. Um, this isn't humility on my part. It's, uh, it's, just, it's just something that I've never desired is a, a lot of uh, notoriety or famousness or any of those types of things. And so somebody handed me a book recently. It was written for pastors and it was telling the story of a pastor who um, his whole ministry got wrapped up in this idea of being famous. And so he just started pumping out books and his church started growing and he started getting invited to all of these conferences, conference after conference. And what an honor to be invited to all of these things, which to him sounded amazing. To me, sounds like a really big hassle. So it's not humility. It's just, wow, that sounds like more work. I don't want to be be famous because I'm too lazy to be famous, I guess is the way I would say it. But he was doing all of those things so greatly until we came home from one of those conferences and found his wife with packed suitcases. And she said, I'm not your wife. Being famous is your wife. And so he didn't just lose his wife. He lost his ministry. And then he had to go through the process of reestablishing himself in the word of God to become the servant of all. And then eventually he was brought back into ministry. But now he has this proper attitude about it. It's a fascinating idea that the disciples would be like that as well. And so he sits down after he asks them this question, he calls the twelve over and he says to them, if anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and even servant of all. If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. That's not how we envision greatness, is it? First shall be last, last shall be first. 
it's a it's a concept that is a little bit upside down in our world. But actually, if you go through and do the research, I, I was reading a, an article on uh, Entrepreneur magazine. Uh, not that I have the magazine. It was on the Internet because you don't have to pay for things if you have Internet. Because they just post their articles out there and they just throw a bunch of ads on there. That's somebody else pays for it. You get to see it. But the article was looking at businesses that have a servant leadership model and they had higher profits. They had larger growth. And those numbers were in the 8 to 10% range. But then employee satisfaction, 50% higher. And employee retention. It's almost as if Jesus was on to something, right? <laughs> that the servant, the last, is the one who is the greatest. Now think through some of the greatest people that you've actually interacted with. Not great because they were on TV, but the people in your life who you just think are the greatest people on earth. My guess would be they were the people who were always doing things for you. They were the servant of all. They were always helping, always blessing, always looking after your needs. And the response that you would have is say, man, what a great person. They become kind of the greatest in the kingdom of God. It's a cool picture. Now, Jesus is going to further illustrate this. Imagine the scene, all the disciples around them, they're in this house and Jesus is sitting down as a teacher would be in order to instruct uh, his students different than how we do it in America and their culture. The teacher would sit down in our culture. The teacher stands up. It's just a strange difference that we have. Uh, but Jesus is sitting down. All the disciples are surrounding him and Jesus brings to him a child and takes this child and sets him before him, taking him in his arms. He said, Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. Whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. And he begins to illustrate the point now. In the whole room, Jesus decides, I want to show you who really the greatest person in this room is. And he pulls a kid to himself. So you've got the 12 disciples there arguing over which one's the greatest. And Jesus like says to this kid, hey, whoever receives someone like this in my name receives me, but they don't just receive me, it's him who sent me. So how is Jesus saying that they would receive him, receive God? By putting themselves in this humblest of positions by receiving this child. He's illustrating the point to them. I imagine as they looked around the room and they saw the various people. I don't know whose house it is. Apparently they have kids. As they walked into this house and looked around the room, the disciples probably gave all the respect to the man of the house, right? When they came in, the man of the house, the man of the house, the man of the house. Meanwhile, the woman of the house is wrangling the kids and making the meal and working behind the scenes. In that scenario, when Jesus says, whichever one receives this child, this is the one who receives me. He illustrates the point of servanthood because who's the one in the house who receives the children? Who's the one in the house that cares for the kids? It was the women that were there. Just this very simple but powerful setup I think anyway, powerful setup to what's going to happen next. 
Because right after Jesus says, whoever receives this child has received me, John pipes up. Now, you'd think John had been paying attention. I would hope, right? But they kind of have this consistency where time and time again, it's just like they're, they're putting the emphasis on the wrong syllable, right? They're just, they're close, but they're just kind of missing what Jesus is saying. So right in the midst of this, be a servant, humble yourself to receive even the most humble people. And then John says, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to prevent him because he was not following us. He was not one of us. It's that pride creeping in. Which one is the greatest? Well, we may not be able to decide which one of us 12 is the greatest, but we do know that all 12 of us are greater than everybody else. So we we're, we're at least top 12. That's all they're trying to say, right? Like if somebody was making a list of the top 25 people on the planet Earth, they obviously see themselves as being in the top 12. That's pretty good. Of all the people on planet Earth, that's not bad. And they would say, because we're close to Jesus. And Jesus would say, only because I invited you, you're the remedial class. <laughs> and so they see this guy. Now think about this scene. They see this guy and it says specifically he was casting out demons in Jesus' name. Now contrast that with what happened to them when we were studying last week. They couldn't cast out the demons in Jesus' name. So he was successful in doing the things that they were unsuccessful in, and they tried to stop him. But Jesus, we've been walking all over the countryside with you. Why should he get all the credit? Jesus responds to them, Do not hinder him, for there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is for us. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. And so Jesus essentially lays this out for them. Who, for who is not against us is for us. Which tells them that he saw through this and recognized what they were actually saying is it's us versus them. It's the great people, the disciples, the apostles. And then these people out here who aren't quite as good at us, even though they're doing the same thing. And in, by the way, they're doing it better. They're actually achieving success in casting out demons. Jesus even calls it a miracle. No one who will perform a miracle in my name. So he even recognizes the miraculous nature of what was happening. Yet they couldn't see that because in their own pridefulness, they were concerned about their position. They didn't have the humility to look at the circumstances and say, wow. These guys are actually casting out demons, performing miracles in Jesus' name. I think following Jesus and seeing how popular his, he was, they were receiving uh, the feeling as if they were part of the popularity. They were like so used to the crowds and everybody surrounding Jesus, and they just happened to be next to Jesus. They kind of felt like that was their thing. 
They kind of felt like, hey, look at us. We're pretty mighty. We're pretty awesome. We're pretty amazing. But it's this consistent nature of pride and Jesus consistently teaching them about humility. He's trying to teach them the real way forward is not to be the greatest, but to be the greatest servant, not to be the most famous, but be the one who's always, always, always looking to make others famous. It's, it's a complete different viewpoint on the way that God would see things. And Jesus is trying to lay this out for them. And he even uses this example. Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ, I say he will not lose his reward. So can you imagine this actually has happened to the disciples, right? Like the disciples hang out with Jesus. They come to town and people can't wait to serve them because they hang out with Jesus. And so they receive their cup of water or whatever it is. And maybe even as they were sitting in this house in somebody else's home, having the hospitality of another family, probably they're sitting there with cups of water in their hands. That's how I imagine it. They came in for this long journey. Whoever's there in the house serves them the water. And they're arguing about which one of them is the greatest. And Jesus says the servant is the greatest. And then he follows that up by saying this. Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink. Because of your name as followers of Christ, I say to you, he will not lose his reward. It's kind of a, an interesting picture. He's turning it all upside down in their minds. It's been a consistent thing in the life of Jesus. Uh, even if you think about the healings that Jesus did, that was serving other people. Now, it made him famous but it was a consistent serving of other people. In fact, he said, this isn't why I'm here. But he would have compassion on the people he would see in need and he would begin to serve them. He would begin to take care of them. I heard a great thing last night. I was uh, talking to a, a family that was here for the event last night. They attend another church in town. It was actually kind of cool because I had two different families share the same story that someone in their church uh, has been wheelchair bound for years and her husband has been caring for him for years. And then in the middle of this process, the husband's hip goes out, has to have a hip replacement. So he's now got this eight week window where he's down. He can't serve. And so a number of families from the church. Have all joined together to serve that family. That greatness. And then I heard it from two different families. That's greatness right there. That is the picture of the body of Christ. It's the picture that Jesus is hoping. We have this mentality sometimes as churches, as believers. When we see another church have success, uh, we almost get angry about it. and We're like, we can beat that. Well, if you're going to beat somebody, let's beat them in servanthood. Let's beat him in servanthood. I was having a conversation recently with another pastor who was upset about something he heard another pastor is going to teach. And so I said to the pastor, maybe let him teach it first before you get mad at him. And, and by the way, don't you already have one church to be in charge of? Like, how do you have time to care about anybody else's problems? Like, let them actually finish the teaching before you get angry at them. It's this backwards mentality that we somehow have. And I, I really feel 
like in situations of jealousy and things like that, it's because we want to be known. We want to be great. And so we try to build ourselves up and we try to build up these ranking systems in our minds. I don't think in heaven Jesus has this ticker running across the bottom of his TV screen listing out the top 25 disciples. I don't think that's happening. That's not the way that works. But that's the way it kind of works in our minds. People are always trying to climb the ladder of discipleship to be greater in the kingdom of God. Jesus says the greatest way is to hold the ladder for somebody else. Verse 42, he continues on and remember he's holding a child. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. And I think he's now bringing this all together as he's holding the child, as he's rebuked them for trying to prevent somebody for working in Jesus' name and trying to decide amongst themselves which one of them is the greatest. The stumbling is the pride. It's their pride that is causing others to stumble. It's their pride that's causing each other to stumble. Which one of us is the greatest as they argue and and discuss these things? It's causing this man who's going out, casting out demons in Jesus' name, having great success. Could you imagine the 12 disciples coming to him and say, stop it? It's causing him to stumble. And Jesus holds this, this humble child in his lap. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones of mine to stumble... You'd be better off to drown with a millstone around your neck. In other words, because once I get a hold of you, it's on. You're going to suffer. And it kind of changes then the tone of the next couple of verses. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble... And then Jesus says these famous words, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than having your hands go into hell, into the unquenchable fire where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than having your two feet to be cast into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. I've always heard this taught as remove sin from your life. And so the illustration would go something like this. You struggle with pornography? Throw away your computer. You struggle with alcohol? Don't hang out at bars. That's how I've always been taught that. That's how I've always heard that. But when you put it in the context of this, who were the ones causing the stumbling in this passage? The disciples. And they weren't stumbling themselves 
whatever's causing you to stumble. It's almost as if you could insert the word whatever's causing you to stumble others. Get rid of it. You could almost read that into the context there. Whatever is causing you to ensnare is the word. Whatever is causing you to trip up. And it's actually describing a literal snare that they would take a branch and they would bend it in hopes that an animal would walk by and it would grab their foot so they could kill it. And he's beginning to personalize this message for his disciples. Whatever you're doing to stumble other people, knock it off. And he uses this illustration of your hand, your foot, your eye. What I find fascinating about this is we don't hear about the one-armed, one-legged, one-eyed disciples from this part forward. So apparently they didn't take this as a literal thing. Like he wasn't literally saying, well, it's your hand that caused you to stumble. It's your hand that caused others to stumble. That's not literally what he's saying. He's diagnosed it for them already. It's their lack of humility. It's their pride. It's their desire to be great. That's what's causing all the discontent within their own team. That's what's causing them to go after other people and tell them to stop ministering in Jesus' name. It's their pridefulness. That's what needs to be cut off. And he brings this very graphic warning of unquenchable fire of hell. The place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It sounds like a pirate. I love it. Like I can see the movie Pirates of the Caribbean. I can see one of the pirates saying that. Aye, we're going where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Simple distractions. It's easy to live in my world. You just go any direction you want. It's fine. You can be entertained no matter where you're looking. But this idea just kind of repeated there. Man, it's better to get rid of your pridefulness than to be thrown into hell. A little textual thing I would like to point out to you, and you may or may not have this depending on what version of the Bible you have. Verse 44, uh, as well as, oh, now I've lost it, verse 46, uh, in some versions of the Bible, that may either be in brackets, like it is in my Bible, or those two verses may be missing. Uh, context, or the text, as they've gone through the text, and they continue to find more and more ancient manuscripts of the Bible, what they've found over time that some of the older ones don't have a few things. And so newer translations like the New American Standard Bible, because that came along long after the King James, the King James wouldn't have that in brackets because they didn't have the older texts found at that point. But the New American Standard just makes a little bracket around there to say some people would dispute whether or not this was scripture. But what's important to note, some people would get all caught up on that. But even though those two quotes Verse 44 and verse 46 may have been inserted by somebody who was trying to add a little emphasis. Notice at verse 48, there are no brackets. That's in all of them. So that same phrase is there. The other thing textually that you want to notice, many translations will have that in all capital letters. Whenever you see something in the scripture that's in all capital letters, that's telling you that it's a quote of the Old Testament. The Old Testament quote comes from the very last book of, the, of Isaiah, or last chapter of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 66, verse 24. And it's pointing to this time where Jesus is describing the restoration of his kingdom. And then once his kingdom is restored, he says, now I want you to look at 
all of these corpses who died because they transgressed me. Because they sinned against me. And so Jesus is drawing this relationship that as they have stumbled other people, it's a transgression against him personally. It's a transgression against Jesus. And that's where in the Old Testament it uses this phrase that those who died in sin against God will go to a place where worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And it's where we get our idea of an eternal punishment and an eternal hell for our transgressions against God. So all of that then is going to come to an end with a couple of strange-sounding verses. Verse 49 likely then is a continuation of that thought. For everyone will be salted with fire. So he's been saying, unquenchable fire. Hell. Hell. Salted with fire. Everyone will be seasoned or preserved through fire. And that's then when he brings up this final quote, Salt is good, but if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. He's drawing this whole picture. Now, uh, I will tell you, as I was reading through this, uh, one commentary actually said this, that there are 15 different interpretations of these two verses. So please don't feel like just because this is what I said, it's what everybody says. There's a lot of dispute if people have tried to figure out what these two verses mean. But as you go through the scriptures and particularly the teaching of Jesus, you can see these two pictures used consistently by Jesus. The picture of fire, the picture of of salt. As you go through those different teachings of Jesus, you kind of see how they play themselves out. So I'll just I'll read to you just a couple Real quickly here, first we'll deal with how Jesus approaches the idea of fire. Matthew chapter 7, verse 19. Jesus says, Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And you see that same type of picture all throughout the Scripture. Those who don't bear good fruit will be thrown into the fire. Now, put that back into our passage. These disciples who are showing a fruit not of humility, but instead a fruit of pride in their life, He's warning them that there is a danger of being thrown into the fire. Because the fruit that they're bearing does not match their confession of faith in Christ as Lord. You can also see it in a parallel passage. By parallel, I mean He's... It's Matthew's dealing of the same picture here, the same passage in Matthew chapter 18, verses 8 and 9, where he talks about stumbling blocks again. In verse 8, it says, If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands and two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. And so it seems as if that same thing is being applied here. And then the second side of that is the idea of salt. Salt has an idea of preservation. Some people like to think of it in 
uh, seasoning to make something taste good. But for them, they use salt to preserve their meat to make sure that it was still good so they can eat it. And if your salt is no good, then your meat is no good. And you do not want to eat that meat because that'll make you no good. That'll cause all kinds of problems for you if you don't have meat that's been well preserved. So he uses this same idea of saltiness, remember, in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt becomes tasteless, how can it be salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. I believe he's warning his disciples. He's warning them. You keep acting like this, you'll be useless for my kingdom. You'll be of no value. You'll be cast out. And then you see it again also in Colossians. I love how Paul uses this word. Colossians chapter 4, he talks about talking with grace, salting your words. That your words would be salted with grace in Colossians 4, 6. So it's just kind of this great picture of how God intends things to go forward and this warning here that he's bringing to his disciples that if you continue to act in pridefulness, you will be useless to my kingdom. Instead, you need to be servants. You need to be humble. And the result of that is have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another because they weren't at peace with one another. They were arguing and fighting over what happens. Which one of them is the greatest? They're arguing over that. Which one of us is the greatest? Which one of us is the greatest? Which one of us is the greatest? That's not intended. I don't imagine they were nominating others. I think it's him. I vote for him. I think they were nominating. Like they, they're thinking they're the greatest. They're not at peace with one another. They're arguing. In fact, Jesus asked the question, what are you discussing? And that Greek word there literally is, 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 is a lively discussion. But then it says that they kept silent for they had discussed, it says in English, but it's a different phrasing of that word that says they were arguing over who was the greatest. There's no peace. And then you have this other guy out here who's, who's doing his best to serve Jesus Christ by casting out demons in Jesus' name, and they tell him to knock it off. There's no peace. And they're in somebody else's house being literally served by other people. And they're walking in pride and trying to figure out how great they are. There's no peace. So in my newfound desire not to be a poet, but to try to make things memorable, memorable, that's pretty memorable. <laughs> so my newfound thing, I'm trying to be more concise at the end of a sermon so you have something to remember. If you can just remember this little poem that I wrote. Don't stumble, be humble. Don't stumble others or yourself with your pridefulness. Just be humble. You'll be surprised how many times humility, humility will gain you attention. I remember when I first became an elder at this church years and years and years ago, 
uh, Pastor Ron was here and we had this group of elders and they would get together and they would meet up uh, at different places, sometimes at the Linux Auto Body above there where we had our office at that time. Then we moved here out of this office out here. Sometimes we would meet at the SDA church after service and we'd have these meetings and I would come in there, the youngest guy in the room. I'm the volunteer youth pastor. I, I, I feel kind of out of place. I feel like everybody there is smarter than me. And so in response to that, I just never said anything at an elders meeting. And so they were having this one particular elders meeting where everybody's just kind of going back and forth on this one issue. And I'm doing my normal spiel, which is saying nothing because I'm convinced that everybody in the room is smarter than me, more godly than me because they were older than me. And that is the evidence, right? You're like, you're older. So obviously you're smarter than me. You're older. Obviously you're more godly than me. And so I'm just listening to all of this going on and I'm just taking it in like I always do. And all of a sudden, one of the guys goes, Sean's been really quiet. I wonder what he thinks. And all the eyes look at me. And I said what I thought, which I don't even remember what it was. I said what I thought. It didn't seem that profound to me. But all the elders in the room went, wow, that's good. And then the argument was over. And I'm like, I think I got that from Dr. Seuss. Like, <laughs> but because I had come in in humility before that, it was like, Sean has said something now. It was this cool moment. It's really a, a, a tough thing to do when you're the pastor now and everybody expects you to speak all the time. It's hard for me to play that card now. It's hard for me to play that, that humble position now. But the reality is because of their lack of humility, they were stumbling others. They were stumbling themselves. They were causing strife in the midst of their own group of 12 and within others outside of their group who were still ministering in the kingdom of God. And I would suggest when we find ourselves in conflict, in particular with other believers, that our first response is humility. So that we don't find ourselves defending not our God, but our own reputation. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the humility of your son, Jesus Christ, who who lowered himself to the point of crucifixion, to the point of death, even death on a cross, we're told, who being in form, God. Refused to take the position of God amongst people, but instead emptied himself. So that he could be with us, so that he could be like us that He could lead us through humility. Father, would You be rooting out the pridefulness in our own hearts? Would You be looking at the conflicts that are in our life individually as Christians, those of us who find ourselves at different times in conflict, would You remind us in the midst of that conflict to go first in humility and see if it brings the other side to a place of humility? Father, that as far as it's possible for us, that we would be at peace with all people. Lord, we pray these things today in Jesus' name. Amen.